Okay, friends, we are continuing in our series through the book of Acts today, and we're currently in the middle of this very long scene that I think needs to be broken down to a few sermons because it's just way too long to tackle all at once. And to really understand what's going on in our scene today, we kind of have to talk about and remember how the scene first started last week when we studied it, okay? Or else today won't make sense. So, what happened last week in the beginning of the scene? Well, we saw the Apostle Paul, who's like the guy that God used to do most of the gospel work during the book of Acts era, okay? He was out preaching the gospel and planting churches in a bunch of places, primarily in non-Jewish or in Gentile territory. Our passage will specifically specify later it's in Asia, but Asia there means Central Asia, so modern-day Turkey, okay? He was there preaching the gospel. He was there planting a bunch of churches. And then last Sunday, we saw that he came back home to Jerusalem, and the, Jews, the Jewish people in Jerusalem forced him to do a seven-day purification process that's called the Nazarite vow, okay? He had to do that before he can enter back into the city. Why? Because they believed back then that returning travelers needed to cleanse themselves off first from all the impurities they might have caught out there while they were traveling. Or else, if not, they would kind of contaminate the Holy Land upon their return. What kind of impurities? Well, ritualistic impurities, like during their travels, maybe they might have had to eat meat that wasn't kosher. They might have had to interact uh, with someone who had leprosy. They might have accidentally grazed a dead animal while they're walking, whatever. Those are all the kind of stuff that the Jewish people back then believed. If you got exposed to them, the impurities in those things kind of into you. That's my official academic statement, okay? It just kind of, it goes into you. So Paul had to do this seven-day penance of sorts. He had to shave his head bald, if you remember we saw last, last Sunday. He had to buy all kinds of animals to sacrifice and other things and do all kinds of stuff to kind of become, quote-unquote, pure again. Now, what the readers of this story, you and I, are meant to feel at this point is exhaustion. We're supposed to feel tired. At this point, we're supposed to think to ourselves, oh my goodness, why are these people making Paul go through all this stuff? Is this what Christianity is all about? Doing all of these external ritualistic things to kind of stay pure? And God, through the passage we're going to read today, answers back to us sternly, no. This is not what Christianity is all about. But the thing is, oftentimes, we can feel like it is, isn't it? This is perhaps why if you're here today and you're not a Christian, maybe you're still exploring the gospel, you're kind of getting to know to what Christianity is all about, this is why maybe Christianity hasn't been appealing to you. Because some of you still think that what Christianity is, is a bunch of purity rituals that you just have to do. Well, if that's what you think Christianity is, of course it's unappealing to you. It'll be unappealing to anyone. And this is also the reason why I think a lot of Christians who are here today, this is why you're constantly tired in your Christian walks. 
You're always anxious. You're never at rest. Because deep inside, many of us still think there's a level of spiritual performance that we must maintain in order to remain pure in God's eyes. You may not consciously think that, but if you really analyze the source of your spiritual tiredness, that's a big part of it. And God in this passage is trying to convince non-Christians and also remind Christians that that is not what Christianity is all about. Christianity is not an exhausting religion that forces people to do a bunch of external activities to stay pure. It's different. But how? How is it different? Well, let's get into the passage. This is what happened at Paul's last day of performing the Nazarite vow, okay? He was on his seventh day, and this happened. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place, for they had previously seen seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some of the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and he could not learn the facts because of the uproar. He ordered him to be brought into the barracks, and when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Thus says the Lord. Why do many people mistake Christianity as just being another exhausting religion? Because, we'll see in this passage, there's a lot of similarities between the two. There are. However, what we'll see also in this passage is that there's a huge difference within these similarities. To keep it simple, let's call these the opposite same, okay? It's what I, the best I can come up with. The opposite same. Same categories, but it's completely opposite. All right. What are some opposite sames that Christianity has with other religions? First, both Christianity and other religions believe in the concept of sin. Second, both Christianity and other religions both have a passion against it. Third, both Christianity and other religions have a solution for it. Okay? Opposite sames. Let's start with the first opposite same. Both Christianity and other religions have a concept of sin. That's not a debated thing, right? That we, we all agree that sin exists. The difference is, and I'm pretty sure if someone from a different religion is sitting here today and they're hearing me say this, they would completely agree. Like, I'm not saying anything that's controversial here. The main difference is that although we both believe in the concept of sin, Christianity has an inside-out view of sin, meaning we believe sin comes from within us, 
expressed externally. Whereas other religions would have more of an outside-in view of sin. That is, sin exists out there, and when we do it, or when we're exposed to it, it infects us in internally. That's the first big difference. And some of us are sitting here saying, okay, what's the big deal? Outside in, inside out, that's not a huge difference. Well, actually, it's an enormous difference. And depending how you view sin, you'll live your life completely differently. Let's take a look at how the Jewish people in our passage today viewed sin. They had an outside-in view of sin. Verse 27 starts off by, uh, with Paul uh, saying that he was on the seventh day of his Nazarite vow, okay? Now, if you think about it, why did they make Paul do the Nazarite vow in the first place? Because they didn't want to catch the sins that Paul might have caught during his travels out there. You see that? It's an outside-in view of sin. Don't, don't affect us with all that junk. You know, purify yourself first. And this is also the reason why Paul got kicked out of the temple in verses 28 to 31. They kicked him out. Why? Because they thought Paul brought a Gentile or a non-Jew named Trophimus, verse 29 says, into the temple. And that news made the whole city go crazy, right? They seized Paul, verse 30 said. They dragged him out of the temple, shut the doors, and they wanted to kill him. And, and you're reading that, and you're like, why? What is such a big deal that a non-Jewish person, a foreigner, enters the temple? Well, it's a big deal if you have an outside-in view of sin. You see? Fun historical note. The temple in Jerusalem back then that we're talking about in this passage was divided into four sections based on purity levels, okay? The inside center of the temple was the Holy of Holies, okay? That's where they believed the presence of God was, and only the really, really, really pure high priest can enter there. And then the second tier, the second layer, and there's like walls in between these layers, right? The second layer was called the holy place. It's not the holy of holies. It's, it's a holy place, you know, where the lower-ranked priests could enter. And then the third layer, further away from the presence of God, is where the men were placed at, okay? So where are the women? In the fourth layer, furthest away from the presence of God, that's where they placed the woman. Now, ladies, before you get upset at this, actually, I think every single one of us here should be upset. Because you know where they would have placed us? Gentiles, non-biologically Jewish people. They would have placed all of us behind the Israelite women, outside of the, outside of the courts, furthest away from the presence of God. They would not have let you in to the temple. You would have been met with this big wall, barricaded with physical security that would have stopped you, a barricaded wall that had signs written on them, at least two is found, okay, historically, and it says this, I quote, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple, an enclosure. Anyone who is caught trespassing will bear personal responsibility for his ensuing death. So, you got ready this morning, took a shower, you got dressed, you got into your car, you drive all the way to MNC, you park your car, you walk to the lobby, 
or to the elevators, and a sap bomb stops you. And he gives you kind of the elevator look, you know what I mean? Top to down. And he goes, not you. Look at you. You're impure. You can't meet with God. And if you ever try to get in, we'll kill you. If you have an outside-in view of sin, like the Jews did here in our passage today, you're going to naturally be in this constant state of anxiety to remain pure. And you will do everything you can to keep the evil world at bay out there. And you'll live your life treating most other people like dirt. You will. And this outside-in view of sin actually exists everywhere, not just in religious circles. This outside-in view of sin is also what's behind the caste system, for example, in certain cultures, right? The filth of the lower castes can't, you know, infect the, the cleanliness of the higher caste. Another example, this one may be a little bit too close to home, but I'm going to shoot for it anyways. If we're honest, if you really think about it, this is also the reason why some people won't let their kids marry outside of their race. We can't let the imperfections of that race contaminate the purity of ours. Hello. What is that? That's an outside-in view of sin. Now, some of you here who are more progressive in your thinking, you might be saying this. Preach it, Tez. You're right. Those old traditional ways of thinking, they're always filled with an outside-in view of sin. But hold on. Progressive thought also is filled with this kind of thinking. It is. What do you think fuels the cancel culture that we see happening everywhere today? It's like there's no room for conversation. There's no room for curiosity or helping someone repent from their sins. It's just like, oh, he said something racist? Cancel him. Gone. Throw him out of the temple. Shut the doors, you see. We've got to keep ourselves pure from that. Did I just poke both conservatives and progressives in the same sermon? I think I did, but that's okay, because I did it equally. What's my point? My point is, this outside-in view of sin, it's everywhere. It's in conservative thought. It's in progressive thought. It's in religious people. It's in non-religious people. It's everywhere. Everyone's saying, we're pure, you're not, and in the middle of this mess, Someone named Jesus enters into the conversation and says, mm, actually, you're all impure. <laughs> in Matthew chapter 15, he said, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what? What comes out of the mouth. You're all impure. Filth, this Jesus claims, doesn't come from the outside in. It's been in you this whole time. And this is category-shattering. It was, and it'll change the way you view life. It'll change the way you view the world. It'll change the way you treat people. And as we move on to our second point, it'll also change the way you fight against sin. Both Christianity and other religions agree that we both, we, we need to fight against sin, but because we have an inside-out view of sin, we do it completely differently, okay? The same opposite. Second point, we both have a passion against sin. So, Another huge contrast that this passage is meant to display 
is how the Jews and Paul reacted differently toward sin. Let's first take a look at how the Jews reacted to Paul, who they considered to be a sinner. Okay, verse 30, 30 to 31 says that they dragged him out of the temple, and they shut the temple doors, and they wanted to kill him. See, the way they dealt with sin is through external purging. They wanted to kill Paul. But thank goodness, some Roman soldiers saw all this happening, and they saved Paul. By the way, another fun historical fact, did you know why the Roman soldiers were so quick to react here and save Paul very quickly? It's because they're right there. A few years before this event, Herod the Great built a fort near this Jerusalem temple called the Antonia Fortress, and he filled it with tons of soldiers, and he specifically built this fort near the temple. There's actually staircases that connect the temple to this fort. Why? Because he, keep, he kept on seeing that these kind of anxious religious riots that happens here in our passage today, it keeps happening all the time near the temple. The temple was sort of a hot spot for social tension and, and riots. Why? Because that's how an outside-in view of sin makes you live your life. It makes you pursue purity and fight against sin in this really abrupt and restless and even mean kind of way. And if it's taken far enough, it can even be disruptive to society. And we've experienced this in Indonesia a few times. So much so to where Rome had to build a whole fort next to the temple and fill it with a tribune, verse 31 says. A tribune is a leader of a thousand soldiers. <laughs> Are you seeing the picture here of what an outside-in view of sin that the Jews had produced, it produced a violent culture of purging. And this culture of violent purging scared even the most powerful military force at the time to where they had to build a whole fort and put a thousand soldiers in it in order to feel safe. And you know what's unfortunate is that many people today feel the same toward Christians and Christianity that the Roman soldiers felt back then towards these Jewish people in the temple. We do. It's like when certain Christians come around, some of you wished you had a fort with a thousand soldiers in it to protect yourselves from this person. Why? Because you know they are out to purge. <laughs> They're just out to get you, you know? And it's exhausting. It's tiring. Now, there's a fine line I'm trying to walk here. I'm not saying it's wrong to rebuke people. I'm a pastor. I have to do that all the time. I'm not saying it's wrong to point out people's sins. Oftentimes, that's necessary and loving even. But what the Bible calls us to do is differently than how the Jews did it here. The reason why many people have their guard up against Christians is because Christians often still do it in the same way that these Jewish people here did to Paul. All they're interested in is just external behavior change. They don't care about the internal root cause of the sin that someone might have in their heart as the expression of it. All they focus on is you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to stop doing this, you got to stop doing that. And what we end up doing is just forcing people to perform our very own versions of the Nazarite vow. We're not interested in real inside out change. We just want behavior modifications that will keep people, quote unquote, pure. And that is exhausting. 
It's exhausting. But if you have an inside-out view of sin, you won't be satisfied with just external behavior change. Yes, you will long for that, but first you'll realize that what you need to change is the person's internal object of worship. That's the problem. Because we realize, as Jesus said, the problem is in here, not out there. See, it's an opposite same. Both Christianity and other religions desire to passionately fight against sin, but what makes Christianity distinct is that we start from the person's internal object of worship, not just from their external behavior. And this is the distinction that Luke, I've got to point this out. It's kind of a, a, a minor maybe point in the text, but it, I think it's a big point. This is the distinction that Luke is trying to make here between Christianity and Judaism throughout the book of Acts. If you've been with us and you've been listening through the series, through the book of Acts, one of the benefits of preaching whole books is you get to see what the author is trying to say, not just from a verse, but from a theme that you see ongoing in the book. And one overarching theme that we see in the book of Acts is that if you've noticed, we have slowly progressed um, the gospel of Christ has been made distinct from the Judaic temple. Slowly, it's become more and more separate. If you remember in the beginning, in Acts chapter 2, a bunch of Jewish people heard the gospel. What did they do? They praised God. They came to Christ. They accepted it. But as the book of Acts progressed, slowly and slowly, we started to see Paul getting kicked out of more and more temples we see Paul starting to get persecuted more and more by the Jewish circumcision group. And now in our passage today, the gates of the temple finally shut itself off from Paul. And this is, by the way, the very last time that the Jerusalem temple is ever mentioned in the book of Acts. After this, it's no more. And that's a significant thing Luke is trying to communicate, the author of the book of Acts. It's a sad thing. He's saying that the last picture we see of the Jewish temple in the book of Acts is that it shut its gates up to the gospel. What point is God trying to make here? He's saying that he understands it's confusing. Judaism, Christianity, Christianity, exhausting religiosity, it's all mixed up in there, it is confusing, and the gospel, Christianity can often feel like that ritualistic religiosity, but it's, it's different. It's different. Anxious, prideful, cruel, outside-in view of sin, ritualistic religiosity is not the kind of life that the gospel produces. The goal of Christianity is not just to make people externally behave better. It's first and foremost internally to worship the right thing. That's our goal. We want to make people worshipers of Christ, not just more behaved people, okay? So, as we go on to our last point, how do we do that? How do you do that? How do you, Christian, change from the inside out, not just externally in your behavior? Let's look at our last point. With Christianity and exhausting religiosity, have a solution to sin, okay? So, what's the answer? How do you do that? How do you switch from worshiping one thing to then all of a sudden worshiping another thing. Let's make this more concrete, more applicable, okay? It's a battle of beauty. It's a battle of beauty. Whatever you perceive 
as most beautiful and captivating in your life will naturally take preeminence in your heart. The first step of how someone becomes a Christian is not do this and be pure. It's rather behold this beauty and fall into worship. Now, what could Christianity offer that's so beautiful and so captivating that it will naturally take preeminence in your heart? Well, we see it in the last two verses of our passage today. Let me read it. And when Paul came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. That last phrase is important. Away with him, or in the Greek, aire auton. There's only one other time that Luke, the author of Acts, specifically uses the phrase aire auton, or away with him, in his writing. And it's not in the book of Acts, but it's in the gospel of Luke. It's in his gospel. When do you think that might have been? Think about it. Who's another person the Jewish crowd was shouting at in the Gospel of Luke who was also held and chained by the Roman soldiers in a Roman fort near the Jerusalem temple, not far from Paul's location here? Who's that person? Jesus. You remember in Luke chapter 23, verse 18, the Jews wanted to trade the murderer Barabbas with Jesus. You know what happened? Remember what they said? Let me read what they said. The Jews all cried out together, Aire auton, away with this man, release to us Barabbas. What truth does Christianity offer that no other religion does? that's so beautiful and captivating to where it has the power to change us from the inside out. It's the claim that the God of the universe traded places with you. He traded places with you. See, the Jews here didn't realize that the holy God they were so scared Paul would contaminate with his impurities He wasn't waiting around in the middle of the temple anymore. He's gone out, not only to the second tier or the third tier or the fourth tier where the women were at or outside the courts where the Gentiles were at. He went all the way out. He passed the Gentiles. He climbed a nearby hill, and he hung on a cross. For what? To purify Paul. and to purify any of us who would receive this offer of mercy. The Jews back then lived their lives avoiding impure people, but Jesus walked around the earth touching lepers. And when he did that, what happened? Did Jesus get dirty? No. The leper got clean. Look. If God has set his eyes upon you, if he's reached down to touch you, then I don't care how filthy you are. I don't care what you've done. 
God doesn't get dirty. You get clean. You become pure. Because the God that made you pure paid the price for your purity when He died and traded places with you on that cross. That's Christianity. That's the first step. Not, you better clean yourself off. But have you received the cleansing He's offering? Some of you here today, you've been trying to stay clean your whole life. You've been trying to wash yourself away from whatever past impurities you think entangles you or current with your own versions of the Nazarite vow. And you might have gone to the seventh day, you know, you finally feel like you're a good person, you finally feel like you've done it this time, but then, as always, you fail again. You know how I know? Because I fail again. And we're impure again. And you always feel like you're outside of the temple. You never, ever, ever feel the rest of being inside. You're always trying to look in. Of course you're tired. Of course you're exhausted. Don't you see, the God that you're trying to get to already came out of the temple to you. Stop waiting to feel good enough before you commune with Him. How subjective is that standard anyways? If you're here today, and you haven't received Christ as Lord and Savior, you're still trying to clean yourself off, do not shut the doors of your heart like the Jewish people in the temple here did to the gospel. I promise you, you will never find rest behind those doors. Ever. Lay down your anxious rituals and behold the God who's traded places with you to make you pure. And if you're here today and you are a Christian, meaning you have received Christ as Lord and Savior, remember how you got in the temple. You didn't burst down the doors with your own good deeds. Oh, you didn't. You got in because He came out to welcome you with His nail-ridden hands. And if he decided to do that back then, while you were still sitting in the filth of your own sin, why would he cast you out now? Why would he throw you out now? Oh, because he doesn't want to be with filthy me. You're not filthy. You're not filthy. When will you finally let your heart believe that? You're pure. And you can never lose something you never earned. So rest, would you? And in that rest, find the strength you need to fight your sin powerfully, but not anxiously, as if your purity still depends on it. It doesn't. Do it instead because the God who died to make you pure is worthy of this fight. 
do it because he deserves all the glory and the power and the honor forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this truth so easily slips out of the fingers of our souls. And every week, we feel dirty again. We feel unworthy again. We feel filthy again. And we come to church feeling like there is an invisible temple, Sapam, <laughs> saying, why are you even here? <laughs> Look at what you've done. Look at what you're still wanting to do. Don't come in. You're not worthy. I beg you, Father, that your spirit would make the gospel so loud in the hearts of the people who are here today that it would shatter and silence those noises and those voices that come straight from the pit of hell. And may you bring your people whom you have purchased with your blood boldly before your throne because they are yours and you deserve the worship that they have to offer you today. And let it be forever sung we are here communing in the middle of the temple, in the holy of holies, so to speak. Not because we have been good, but because of Christ in me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>